won the culture war. And the whole cabinet of our current president, the whole cabinet are products of the university system in which they have been sold this neo-pagan, anti-Christian approach to morality. Nothing signaled that more specifically than President Clinton's remark in a rather tragic point of irony when he stood up at the convention that with regard to the killing of unborn children, he elevated it to an act of spirituality. When he said this, abortion is to be shot decided by a woman, her doctor, and her dog. It was now a possibility that God might approve of abortion. By the way, it was also a pantheistic statement, or at least a polytheistic statement. Every woman might have her own God telling her whatever her own God wants to tell her. That is certainly more than one God. Our God is the true God, the true living God, who wouldn't tell one woman of abortion was wrong and another woman who was right. True? Our God is not a schizophrenic. So we have no pantheist about a God who is untrustworthy, changes, whimsically, changes his view from person to person, or he believes there are many gods and any woman might have any one that she chooses. That is real paganism, any way you shape it. Now what would drive him to that? What would drive a man to abandon say Southern Baptist roots? What would drive this whole agenda of these anti-Sibbles like that is one driving thing, and this is where the revolution has been fought in one, the one driving compulsion in all of this is sex. Sex, the big word in our culture. Sex, the most compelling issue of our time. Why do people want to, to make the, to put the fornication, premarital sex, extramarital sex, adultery, all that? Why do they want to remove that from the category of sin? Why? Because they want to do that. They want to do it without impunity. They want to do it without guilt. They want to do it without criticism. They want to be free to express themselves sexually. Why is there this massive movement to gain acceptance for lesbianism? Why is it? Why for homosexuality? One reason. They want to engage themselves in sexual acts without any societal repercussions. They want acceptance for their sexual behavior. The whole thing is driven by sex. In fact, the, the, the revolution itself is a 30 year sex revolution. We did real well in the Cold War. We were armed to the teeth. We kept Russia and Eastern Europe at bay. We won the Cold War. Communism collapsed. And the Cold War victory was peanuts compared to losing the sexual revolution. Better we should have been bombed at some point. Than to have given up our standards of morality. We lost the sexual revolution. And the worst illustration of this Unquestionably, the most dramatic and frightening illustration of losing the sexual revolution is abortion. What is the bottom line in abortion? The bottom line in abortion is sex without consequences. Now, when I was a little kid, somebody told me that sports brought babies. And I believed it, even though I'd never seen a stork. Somebody told me sports brought babies, and I'll tell you one thing if sports brought babies, Nobody would legalize abortion. Nobody. If babies came into the world any other way than through sexual relationships, people wouldn't legalize the killing of babies. 
Imagine the people who hate religions, but they love sex. And they want no consequences. And how severe and how profound and how deep is their lust for sexual fulfillment so deep that if necessary, they will massacre millions of babies to maintain that freedom. That's the compelling issue. That's what drives the abortionists. That's what drives the whole thing. The pro-abortion agenda is an agenda all about free sex without complications. The most serious complication in sex is a baby. So we got to wonder at that. 99, we got a lot of murders in America. 99% of the murders in America are the murders of unborn babies. 99% of them. And we're even going to the degree of murdering millions of babies to maintain our sexual freedom. The enthronement of abortion is the crown on the head of the sexual abortion. The willingness to murder for the sake of a willingness to copulate. And if abortion had nothing to do with sex, Believe me, it would never have been legalized. Why does somebody want an abortion? Because they hate babies? Everybody wants babies. They want an abortion because they must. They want sex. They don't want any side effects. So I'm sure the Democratic Party and its leadership, and I'm not sure that this goes all the way to the grassroots, in fact, I'm sure it probably doesn't. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. 
condemn the series of which apples back with this one statement. Christ died for God. You remember that? Christ died for God. We, we understood, didn't we, that the, 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 the death of Jesus Christ had tremendous implications for angels because it demonstrated to angels grace and mercy which angels never experienced because there was no salvation provided for them. And so they had to see God's grace at work and God's mercy at work in some other scenario than their own. And so Ephesians 3.10 says the angels look into the whole story of salvation and consequently can see attributes of God they have never otherwise seen. And therefore, the very death of Christ itself benefits angels and ultimately benefits God because of the praise of the angels for his grace. And so also that the cross has an impact on Christ because of course he is exalted and has an impact on sinners because they are saved. But primarily, Christ died for God. What we mean by that is he died to glorify God. When you look at the cross, what do you see? First of all, look at verse 25, where we started in Romans 3. That God displayed publicly Jesus Christ as a satisfaction in his blood. In other words, Jesus was put on the cross by God for what reason? To demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, when one looks at the cross, he sees the righteousness of God. There is God allowing his own son to be executed because sin must be paid for. That's how righteous God is. God couldn't just overlook sin. He couldn't just forgive sin. If he was going to forgive your sin and mine, somebody had to pay the price. The justice of God demanded it. And Christ was the substitute who died in our place. And so when you look at the cross, you see the righteousness of God displayed. Yes, you see his mercy there, of course, but you see his righteousness as well as he puts your sin on his son in order that his justice might be satisfied. Then secondly, the cross exalts God's grace. Remember that from verses 27 and 28, where that is boasting and is excluded. How is it excluded? By a principle. What principle? The principle of works? No. But a principle of faith that we maintain that that is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We talked about the fact that salvation is not of works as we would boast. It's of faith and so we can't boast. All the credit goes to God, all the glory goes to Him. So when you look at the cross, you can exalt God for His righteousness and you can exalt God for His grace. His righteousness is seen in the execution of His judgment on a substitute. His grace is seen in His execution of His justice on a substitute. We are the ones who benefit. Always coming number three in our own. Our lives, we look at this profound passage of the cross so that we can understand the gospel and play it effectively. In verses 29 and 30, we find that the cross reveals God's consistency, God's immutability, God's unchanging character. And this is a, a wonderful argument Paul makes. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Now the issue here is very simple. When you come along and you say you're a Jew, look, salvation is by faith apart from the works of the law. You have just a little bomb to that Jew. Because the Jews at the time of Paul, the time of Christ, believed that 
says when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the written law of God, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law on the law, to themselves, look at this, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts accordingly accusing us to them. You know what he's saying there? The Gentiles have my law. They don't have it in its fullness. They don't have a ceremonial part. They don't have all the nuances of worship and all those matters that are detailed in the Mosaic law. But they have the law in their hearts. They know what is right and what is wrong. They understand what is true and what is false in terms of conduct and behavior. There is a law written in the fabric of their lives. And they are guided by the conscience. It reacts to that law. We talked about the conscience in past time. So, there is one God. Paul says, and consequently he is the God of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews have the written law of God, and the Gentiles have the law of God in their hearts. God is absolutely consistent. He will save the Jew not by that law, but by faith. And he will save the Gentile not by that law, but by faith. You see what I mean? It's not necessary to have the, the scripture to be saved, God didn't say that. Ultimately, and in the end, and finally, the Gentile who lives up to the law written in his heart is going to have to be exposed to the truth from someone. He's going to have to hear who the true God really is. He can have a moral law in his heart. He can understand as long as one says there's a creator, there's a God, there's someone behind everything, a first cause, a power, and he can know something about his nature because of the creation that he sees, but he is still living up to that light, going to have to have further light that can lead him to redemption. He's going to have to come to repentance and belief in the true God. But he is the same God who saves Jews and Gentiles. By faith. Yes. Or keeping works for the means of salvation, Gentiles who have no law could not be saved. And then if they couldn't be saved, God couldn't be the, Jew, the God of the Gentiles. But he is the God of the Gentiles. And scripture makes this clear all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. He is the God of all nations. Acts 14, Acts 17. As well as many Old Testament passages, Zechariah 2, Zechariah 8, Malachi, it's all throughout the Old Testament, you can find it in the Pentateuch. And God is absolutely consistent. God saves everybody by faith. The law written in the heart of the Gentile is intended to lead him to search for the truth which God will reveal. The law written in the Pentateuch and beyond to the Jew is led and is to lead him to the knowledge of God. God saves all by faith. He is absolutely consistent. So much more to say about that, but let's look at the last point. When you look at the cross, which becomes the focal point by which all are saved, the more we saw last time, people are saved by faith. But Christ is the substitute for all who are saved, whether they live in the Old Testament time or since the cross. In other words, all those Gentiles of the Old Testament era who lived up to the light they had and heard about the true God and repented and believed in the true God had their sins atoned for in Christ on the cross. He is the single sacrifice that atones for the sin of all who ever believed in any period of redemptive history. So just 
Jesus Christ there is the one on the cross who demonstrates in his death the consistency of God. And it is in the death of Jesus Christ that the sins of Jew and Gentile alike are atoned for. Those who have the written law, those who didn't have the written law, all of them find that common salvation by faith provided for them through the sacrifice of Christ. God is glorified then in the cross because it manifests his righteousness, his grace, his consistency, and finally, do we then nullify the law through faith? If we say salvation is by faith, do we then nullify the law? The many uses the Greek expression, they get our power, which means it's the strongest negative, never, 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 no, 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 impossible, impossible. On the contrary, we establish the law. And what is the law? It's the divine standard of conduct. Listen very carefully to this, because this is a very important component understanding the gospel. The Jew is going to argue this. He's going to say, if we're saved by faith, if we're saved by grace, without law-keeping works, then the law is useless. Psalm 119, verse 126, they have made the law void. If the law can't save us, the Jew says, then what? And the law is a fraud. It's useless. That's not so. All the answer is no, 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 no. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, the law's real purpose is established. Established, made firm. How is that? Let me show you. What is the purpose of the law? First of all, the law is to show us sin. It all makes that clear in Galatians. The law is to show us sin. If there's no law, if you don't have a written law, and you don't have a law of what is right or wrong in your heart, you don't know you're sinning. You have to have a standard, you know, you violated it. So God's law is intended to reveal sin. You live your life, you measure against God's law, and you fall short. You violate God's law, and you realize that. The law then stirs up, as Paul says in Romans 7, the reality of sin, reveals sin. Secondly, the law pronounces judgment. The wages of sin is what? It's death. The soul that sins, it will die. So the function of the law is to show you sin and to announce to you its penalty. In other words, it's to drive the sinner to a real assessment of his condition. He doesn't just have some weaknesses. He doesn't just have some failures and foibles and and some things in his life that he can't get control of, he is violating a divine standard, and the result of that violation is death. The law makes death clear. So that the law, as Paul says in Galatians, is like a schoolmaster driving us to Christ. The law can't save us. It shows us how desperately we need salvation. So the law is established, then, as the divine standard, it is established as the executioner, and that's what he's saying when he says we establish the law. But there's a third component that goes with this. And that is, the law is established as a valid standard of holiness. It is God's standard for behavior. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, perfecting holiness in your life, that means a living according to God's very law. You come to Christ by faith, the law didn't save you, it showed you your sin, it showed you the 
Kelly. Once you come to Christ by faith, your life is transformed, and now you begin to keep the law out of the love for obedience. And so the law is there. When you look at the cross there, summing it up, what do you see? You see God's righteousness displayed? You see God's grace manifest? You see God's consistency revealed as the cross covers the sin of everybody doing to the and you see the wonderful reality that God is also revealing the noble and holy character of His law. So when you look at the cross, young people, when you think about the death of Christ, think not only of its benefits for you, but realize that first and foremost, and above everything else, the cross is intended to glorify God Himself. Well, that was an abbreviated version. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these days that we've had the meditation on this crucial, crucial doctrine of the significance of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we can go into this dark world and increasingly becoming darker and proclaim the message that Jesus Christ saves sinners. And as the darkness deepens, the light shines brighter, and we pray that the light